Join us today and find out exactly how the riots in Hong Kong have impacted our day-to-day -day life as well as our business activities. We also dive into how to control the experience environment and the impact it has on the customer experience. You're listening to Digital Bacon FM. 10 o'clock it is. Bang on a Friday. It's a happy house Friday, but it's also our marketing segment with the one, the only Yoda, Mr. Stephen Barnes. Um, hey, uh, how are you, sir? It's um, been a while. It has been a while. A long while, actually. Uh, I've covered quite a lot of ground since then. New York, South Broome, Underberg, Durban. Yeah, pottering about indeed. Took a little break, which was good for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I've been busy. You know, Hong Kong's been uh, been a bit strange since we spoke last. Yep, uh, and getting a lot so, of coverage uh, for it too. Um, given that we haven't had a proper conversation about this, and given that we're on air and uh, uh, we're recording this for uh, other purposes as well, let's have a conversation. What do you think's going on in Hong Kong? Yeah. Well, I think the. Youth and everybody that are affected have got to a point of having had enough, perhaps. Um, as we've discussed privately, we don't know the forces that are really at play. And ultimately, let's hope that um, the rule of law wins out and civility returns. Because that's really the bedrock of Hong Kong is that it has a rule of law and that people just get on well and just do the things they have to do. My my big takeaway from this entire experience is um, the fact that uh, there's an information war going on. And when you've got uh, all parties who have a particular agenda uh, sort of bleating away at their audience on their platforms as to, you know, what their take on the situation is, uh, there becomes a distinct lack of rational actors and that has created incredible discord and it's made me realize you know just you know what happened in ukraine for example um and uh when you see you know other sorts of things that are happening like in venezuela where uh the message that you think that's being well the message is being imparted to you that you think is actually re reflective of you know the truth and reality and, and the facts on the ground uh, you can't trust it anymore jason because mm. uh i've noticed that being a subscriber to new york um times to the washington post and also to the guardian and being on the ground here and and, and sort of you know talking to a lot of people uh, I've got a I've got a, str a strong sense of actually what's what this thing's all about, and uh, it's not being reflected at all in the mainstream foreign media at all. It, it's amazing how um, agendas come out right into the open, and you can actually see, in a sense, knives being sharpened uh, in the way that the messaging is being um, you know put out uh, with you know the intention to you know create some sort of sense of reality on a place mm. uh, as the mainstream media would have it so you know the reality on the ground here is that there is a very large part of the population certainly enough for the government to be listening that are demanding change um, the change that 
is to occur needs to occur within the existing uh, institutions and within the rule of law. This is my view, right? Um, the government have intimated that, uh, well, they haven't intimated, they've said quite clearly, uh, and they've set up the platform now that they're reaching out into uh, every section of the community to, you know, take on board representations made to see what the future looks like going forward. Um, given that we have to operate within the rule of law, and if you look at the demands that the um, the movement, let's call it, uh, have put out, the reality is that the, uh, the government have actually sort of responded in kind with the present relevant institutions and that uh, allow for, you know, civil discourse to pursue uh, when you're trying to resolve problems like we've got right now. Uh, whereas on the other hand, you know, the let's say the, the leading edge of the movement, um, they're demanding things that uh, are really not quite kind of deliverable, even though they're, they're sort of laudable in their in their aims for it. So you've got the vast majority of the population wanting change, but wanting peaceful change. You've got um, uh, a radical fringe that are going to create mayhem, come what may. And last couple of days, with a lack of targets, they decided they're just going to have a go at MTR stations. So, you know, you can see what their attitude is towards um, bringing about a peaceful, peaceful resolution to a problem's present challenges and a conciliatory approach to moving forward. So the radical fringe are always going to be the radical fringe. Uh, like just lying underneath that are well-intentioned kids that uh, are reluctant for the sake of solidarity to uh, condemn uh, anybody who is using unlawful means because as far as they're concerned, the uh, struggle is the same one and it's shared. And so, you know, given that everyone's going to benefit from the so-called ultimate outcome, then you shouldn't um, you, you shouldn't seek to uh, separate that parties because apparently that all came down in Occupy Central and they've decided they're going to sort of stick together in this fashion. But the problem with that, Jason, is that it just um, tacitly condones uh, unlawful acts. Uh, and it just means that everybody who tacitly condones it are guilty by implication and they're not honest brokers to trying to bring about you know, positive and, uh, and meaningful political change, which is long overdue and uh, is absolutely worthy of, of consideration uh, from top to bottom. That's my, been my position all along. Um, my concern is that the radical fringe are uh, going to set the violence agenda. Um, it remains to be seen exactly uh, how things are going to calm down. It has been a bit of a hot summer. Kids go back to school next um uh, next month, uh, it might just quieten down with the outreach initiative that the government have put in place and uh, some of the sweeteners they've put down. Uh, might be that common sense will prevail and uh, and we'll get back on an even keel again. Mm. But that's my view. Uh, rule of law, give peace a chance, uh, and of this violence and uh, and these unlawful acts, enough is enough. It begs the question, though, if, if one is sub to subscribe to the idea of rule of law and China can willy-nilly change the rules that govern that law, that's the problem. No, they don't. They don't. That, this, is, this is part of the information war, Jason. So they didn't Chinese try and change was, the extradition treaty? No, no, no. This was, no, no, this was nothing to do with China. This was, this was Carrie Lam. This was Carrie Lam basically in an administrative sense 
you know, always having a master to sort of, you know, have to respond to because she's been a government administrator all her life, right? That's just the way she's, she's wired. She's just looked at the whole, her whole sort of custodianship of the um, of the future of Hong Kong and thought, well, yeah, we, we have to have ever, ever closer integration and, we, you know, we are one country, uh, yeah, two systems and all the rest of it. We'll just, just carry on doing what we're doing according to sort of, you know, long-term good stuff without actually stopping to think about what impact it was having on the population as a whole and just nanny state-esque you know that kind of approach mm. so so she it was her, her her that initiated the um the the anti anti-extradition bill which is a, it's a common sense piece of legislation it just so happens that for the first time because it wasn't not just about china it's about a whole array of other uh, situations where we didn't have legal, proper legal coverage um but china was was it was in that legislation and, uh, and would mean that the kind of the fears that has reflected itself in, in sort of the movement as it as it were uh, as it were um it gave it gave voice to you know deep dark sort of concerns and forces and uh whilst it was carrie lamb that was doing it it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't coming down from beijing and part of the issue here is that china's effectively saying to carrie lamb look you made this problem you clean it up this is your dirt not our dirt so again, it's the information war. You can't you can't really believe everything that you're reading because, you know, everyone's got an agenda, and it might be if they don't have an agenda, then they've got uh, they've got the facts wrong. Mm, okay. And it's certain- anyway. Let's talk about marketing. Well, there you go. I was going to say it's certainly not Disneyland. So let's move on to that. Right. Okay. So uh, our dialogue is all about how to build a monopoly from nothing with no money invested. Right. Correct. And we've been working our way through 36 chapters of a series of material called the Monopoly Planner, right? Mm -hmm. And the Monopoly Planner itself falls directly from the movie How to Build a Monopoly from Nothing with No Money Invested, which is the story of the Hong Kong Visa Center. I'm just bringing everybody up today, right? Therefore... Uh, we have been talking for many, many weeks now, working our way through the what I call the Monopoly Planner material, 36 chapters, as I say. And we're now up to chapter 30, uh, and we're going to talk about controlling the experience environment. If you have a connection economy business model, you have to anticipate exactly what the customer that you're going to have a relationship with feels about you know, the interaction that they're having with you. And, uh, you know, when you're, doing, when you're delivering the immigration service, it's just a personal professional service when you get right down to it, you know, technical excellence, the ability to apply that excellence in, in the context of the facts of the, the circumstances of the customer so that you can give them advice so that they can make informed decisions that can then derive a sense of peace of mind that, you know, whatever was troubling them is now sort of under control and what have you. So I kind of understand the experience environment when you're delivering an immigration service. Um, and when I was, you know, well, 15, about 15 years or so ago, I guess it was, um, I was always sort of, you know, thinking about how you could have a kind of a seamless customer uh, interaction in the context of immigration service. But way back then, I was an industrial economy operator and I didn't really, um, you know, sort of understand how the modern sort of connection economy schema works. So uh, I went on to uh, a Disney cruise in 2006. And uh, as a result of that Disney cruise, I came away really with a a really massive level of confidence that uh, if you can 
create certain circumstances so that you can control every single facet of the interaction that the customer has. Um, you can then create something akin to true market alignment. So the Disney Cruise um, was a, a real uh, turning point in my, uh, let's say, development as an intelligent content marketeer. So uh, that then made me sort of go on to examine and look at what was happening inside the Disney organization to see what I could learn from a manage management and a leadership perspective. Uh, and then how I might be able to apply those methodologies to you know, the business resulting business model that was emerging, which you now call intelligent content marketing. So then I, uh, I stumbled across, wouldn't you know it, something called the Disney chain of excellence. Hmm. Okay. Now, a lot of this, I guess, will resonate with you because you, know, you being an F&B <laughs> maestro and in the uh -huh. service game, uh, none of this, will, I guess, will be new to you. It should resonate with an ON. But anyway, the Disney chain of excellence sort of goes through four sort of components. Um, they call it number one, leadership excellence, and then number two, cast excellence. Uh, then third, uh, something called guestology which is really delivering guest satisfaction and then finally um doing that in such a way in such a corporate a commercial environment it's not corporate environment a commercial environment where the financial success of all of that um, leads to repeat business and that in turn has a uh sort of trickle down effect all the way through the organization reflecting itself in you know um a commitment to sort of treating the authors of the service experience, which is the employees themselves, uh, in such a way that, you know, they've got employment, employee satisfaction, uh, employees are retained, not, don't have a big turnover. Um, customer value is, um, is retained because your staff are with you and they know the job's better the longer they do it and all that kind of good stuff which leads to a revenue growth and profitability for the enterprise and shareholder value and then repeat business. So um, there's a kind of a formula behind the uh, Disney uh, chain of excellence and uh, you can take those general themes and apply them into your own business model and uh, uh, that's the way that I have sort of approached it really. Uh, I now take the view that um, my customers are the people that work for me because if I take care of those people who work for me, they'll take care of uh, my customers. So I only have to, you know, have a relationship or impart, um, you know, the sort of the, the values that I believe are important to a limited number of parties that can then parlay that same sort of uh, ethical approach to uh, delivering or having relationships with people out into the customer uh, base more widely. So this is um, one thing that uh, has, has always felt kind of natural to me uh, and should be, you know, should form the basis of, of, of the way that you have your relationship with your employees because, you know, in any event, you also want to sort of apply the golden rule to those relationships anyway. But having, having adopted this approach uh, and then having it sort of confirmed by the Disney chain of excellence, that's been um, uh, extremely validating to me. Okay. Have you been to, have you been on a Disney uh, no. cruise? Have you? Never. Have you been to one of the parks? Nope, not yet. I'd like to go, but it's never just been yeah. never anything I've been near to. Actually, I didn't even go to the well, one in Hong the, Kong, and that was close. Well, given that you've never been, what do you what do you think that's all about then? 
Um, well, I have a one-sided view of it, which has come from you um, in terms of the level of delivery of service and taking care of every need that you may or may not even known you had. Um, yeah. Uh, but I've always, I've never really been interested in that whole Disney theme park thing. It wasn't a big part of my childhood. So um, probably no fascination in terms of the characters, et cetera. So um, yeah, from a business model, well, I can yeah. understand it from, from, from the theme, perhaps not. Yeah. So that's where this whole idea of guestology comes in, right? Um, guestology as Disney would have it is sort of the process of understanding your customers needs their wants their emotions um, and the preconceived notions that they may have about you know the experience ahead so you know really getting deep down inside the psychology of the party they want to have a, rela have a relationship with um, sort of limb number one of guestology which is to sort of understand the uh, customer needs, wants, emotions, and and the like, uh, and then establish your unique quality standards uh, that you use basically as benchmarks to know how satisfied your customers are with what you're doing with them. And again, that's just like the the next level of sort of setting a standard uh, that is high and is going to deliver the kind of experience that you want. But that standard is itself. Um, derived from a deep understanding of the customer's uh, needs, wants, emotions, and the like. Um, and then actually, finally, the third limb of guestology is, that is where the customer wants are. That's where you differentiate from your competition and create customer loyalty. Uh, and it's uh, if you think about what Disney do, there isn't any, any other company in the world barring in a slightly sort of aligned way, uh, Universal Studios. But there isn't another organization in the world that can deliver truly that type of experience that Disney um, delivers, right? Mm. And is it systematic? So that, well, very much so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all, it's, all, it's all drawn out of the inherent attractive, uh, attraction of the characters that they have, principally you know, through uh, cultural uh, association from a very young age. So Disney becomes part of your life as a young person. And then mm. it's a question of recognizing how that can be anchored and then leveraged into uh, products and services that will resonate with, you know, those people that have been impressed with the, you know, they've had the, the Disney thing impressed on them. Um, so such that later on in life, when they're perhaps not interested in um, in, in waving a, uh, wearing Minnie Mouse ears, that they might be interested in, in going on a Disney cruise or uh, or staying in a five star Disney hotel resort. Okay, now would you have gone if you didn't have kids? It's a good question. Um, probably yes, because we had gone over to Florida anyway to do all the you know great stuff that you can do over in Florida, uh, and we wanted to do. Uh, a cruise and I'd been to the Caribbean before as, as uh, my wife Yuka. So we weren't particularly sort of enamored by the destinations that we might be cruising to. So it was a case of, you know, what's the experience that's available to us out of, you know, that Fort Lauderdale uh, as it was then. Um, and I think having sort of had a look at, the other uh, cruises, cruise lines, and the offerings that sort of depart from 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 southern Florida like that, I think we would have probably opted for Disney, 
A, because uh, I think we'd be curious about the experience because Yuki used to work for Disney, Tokyo Disneyland when she was you know, you know, a, a late teenager. Uh, and B, because uh, I think we knew what we would be getting from a quality uh, standard. And uh, uh, it was just novel and unique enough as an idea for us. I think we would have chosen it nonetheless. Okay. And But they delivered big time. Uh, and, and do you think they, if you didn't know intrinsically what they were doing, do you think you would have the same uh, reaction to it as somebody who just goes and enjoys the experience? Or do you think that that knowledge that the services par excellence um, resonates? Well, that's that, again, that's another great question. You're full of them today, aren't you, mate? <laughs> that's only two. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, the experience is enjoyable enough as it is without perhaps being stimulated because you're an entrepreneur or a business executive wired in such a way to be curious as to how, you know, the system underlies it that brings about that experience. Um, because there, you know that you're dealing with an entertainment company, you kind of appreciate that every interaction that you're having at one level or another is entertainment. And that's how they're able to pull it up on the ship because they've essentially anticipated in the realm of a role. Let's say if you're a waiter, right? So when the, when the Disney, when, the, when a waiter on a Disney cruise is going through their training, um, my understanding is that what they do during the training session is they anticipate every potential uh, point of conflict that could happen in the context of a waiter being a waiter for an hour and a half or whatever it is while the meal is being served. And because they've anticipated every potential, and there might be a hundred scenarios that could present themselves, right? From spilling wine and on the expensive, you know, the evening gown or whatever it is through to, uh, you know, dropping a, a buttered, um, what do you call it? A, a buttered roll onto their, on, onto their, uh, onto their lap. Whatever the scenario is, they've anticipated it and they've got an answer to it all, right? So the end result is that the customer is completely satisfied. So you never feel like you've had any point of conflict. So if you now sort of extrapolate that throughout every point of interaction that you have with anybody on that ship, what you realize is that the moment they set crews, uh, however many staff there are, 1,500 staff, for example, they're all, they're all in a three-day-long performance. Um, just uh, improvising as they go, as they deliver this customer service experience with these, um, you know, characters that are bobbing along the whole time and making life interesting. Hmm. Okay. But uh, but yeah, the there's no doubt that you know Disney have cracked this nut, and uh, I've uh, been fortunate enough to sort of have some of my own ideas validated by the way that they do it, and also I've been able to sort of improve on the way that I've been operating as a result of the insights that I've got from the Disney chain of excellence. And do you think it'll still have relevance in 10, 20 years? Well, I think so, because there's nothing else like it, right? And the thing about the Disney Corporation is that that's what they're committed to. It's all about the customer experience. So they're in a constant quest to improve it and, you know, develop it and differentiate it and in the process perpetuate it, I think. Okay, so if if we're moving from, in, in I, I would say that that's probably um, not a connection economy style of business because it relies heavily on person-to-person -person contact. So when the new generation of people are so used to shopping on Amazon and online where they don't really have personal contact and we've become more insular, in 20 years' time, 
will that be a shock to the system? Or will Disney um, be able to morph into a thing that's more relevant to the generations that come after us who have no idea about that sort of personal, no, more, personal interaction? No, Disney, Disney, no, Disney will morph and Disney will, will be a hybrid online, offline experience, right? They'll do things going forward where they'll perhaps start the Disney journey. So the Disney experience, when you get in your car, right, you'll tune into a particular you know thing on the web that's in your car and then all of a sudden... You know, perhaps they're, 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 they've got a customized sort of pre, pre-arrival sort of briefing that goes on for 35 minutes or so as you drive to, you know, to check in onto the boat or check into the park. And, mm. you know, they'll, they'll, I think they'll, they'll make it interactive and, it, you know, the, 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 the real life and the virtual life will be confused into one and, the, and, and, and a little bit of this just wonderful sort of escape thing that represents, you know, somewhere that you go on holiday. Uh, and it might even be, you know, all virtual at some stage, which is another sort of conversation again, right, as to mm. what the future might look like if you can if you can emulate in such a way that you know things look literally like virtual reality. Uh, so no, I think um, I think because we are humans, um, we're always going to have uh, the need to be able to relate and connect. I think what will happen is that the true power of the internet to parlay. Uh, by extension, your personality will uh, will evolve in such a way that it, it's kind of clear straight straight away who you're dealing with, uh, what their what their sort of credibility is, how much you can trust them. You know, you'll kind of like been socially validated in some way, and then that um, that sort of base level of trust will infuse itself into the various transactions that humans will engage in as they exchange value amongst each other when recognizing that, you know, some people will be good at some things and less good at others. And when they're less good at something, we've got to go and find a solution to whatever problems arise as a result of them not being good at solving those problems. So they're naturally having to deal with other parties, if, if not humans, certainly other sort of sources of information and the like services that are automated and what have you um so i think that the uh the the the, the human touch is always going to be uh, part and parcel of what we do it'll just be massively extended as a result of you know the fact that we've got ubiquitous connectivity and unlimited connections now um and sort of just ties back to actually the, the point that i was making before we tried to talk about marketing about sort of the information war going on mm. when you've got you know uh unlimited information you don't know who that what 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 it is you're supposed to be trusting or what makes sense then you've got inherent inherent chaos so humans can't can't uh, function uh, in a in a in a situation of chaos indefinitely hmm. uh, and things settle they have to settle uh, and i think that you know in the same way as things will settle in hong kong in the future things will settle in terms of you know a need to have a sort of a way of trusting whatever information needs that's true about each party can be parlayed to everybody. So you've got the base level of trust that you can move ahead and transact and know that you're not going to come up the worst for it. That, that's still got to evolve, I believe, but I think that's inevitable. And do you think uh, Disney's secret is that everybody has a need or want to be entertained? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Who doesn't, who doesn't, who doesn't enjoy, you know, a Disney movie for the uplifting feeling that you get out of it. And, you know, Disney movies are all just about archetypes when you get mm-hmm. right down to it. They're, they're written and designed, you know, to appeal to the human psyche. So, uh, yeah, so Disney will play an integral part of, uh, of that, I think, for a very long time to come. And long may it continue, too, because, 
uh, you know, having had kids and having sort of, you know, being brought up on Disney as a result of the kids, I just know how much joy that they can impart and how clever their entire proposition is. And ultimately, when you get right down to what really decent value for money they deliver. Mm. All very true. Now, Mr. Barnes, should we be on air next Friday? Where is the next move? Right. Well, the next move is to carry on through to um, chapter 31 of how to build a monopoly from nothing, no money invested, the monopoly plan of material, where we're going to talk about, well, it's a kind of a continuation of, of the theme that we've started down just now with the Disney Chain of Excellence, which is to talk about a little bit more sort of crunchy fashion, market alignment by design. Okay. Excellent. Well, I shall, uh, oh, by the way, I did end up watching Leaving Never, uh, Neverland, by the way. Right. That's another conversation offline, I suspect. <laughs> there you go. But I am going to play out with this and wish you an absolutely awesome weekend. Great to catch up. It's been too long, Mr. Barnes. Digital Bacon FM. Now that you know all about guestology, I hope you'll infuse it into your business proposition. Join us next time to find out more about how to achieve market alignment by design. Mm-hmm.